This is a recording from the University of Virginia and the More Than the Score lecture series, brought to you by the UVA Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. On October 15, 2011, Professor Larry Sabato gazed into his crystal ball to set the stage for next year's presidential and congressional elections. He's introduced by Tom Falders, president of the UVA Alumni Association. Um, this morning I have the opportunity to introduce Larry Sabato. Um, which I feel kind of is, is redundant since most people know him anyway. He's the Robert Kent Gooch Professor of Politics, the founder and director of the Center for Politics. He has a long list of academic, community, and national recognitions. He's been most, the most accurate political prognosticator for many years, most recently coming within one electoral vote of the last presidential election and telling a 98% accuracy rating on the recent senatorial, House, and gubernatorial campaigns. Many Americans around the country have heard of the University of Virginia because Larry is so often quoted in the press on matters of American politics. Probably not surprising then, Larry's motto, and it's on his tie, is politics is a good thing. <laughs> I should note, however, that being all about politics is not the easiest position to take. Uh, Mr. Jefferson, somebody's heard of him? Um, while he was well known for his political activities, was not a great fan of politics. Uh, in a letter to Horatio Gates from his home in Monticello, he wrote, my private business can never call me elsewhere, and certainly politics will not, which I have ever hated in theory and practice. This was followed a few months later by a letter uh, to his daughter, um, where he said, politics are such a torment that I would advise everyone I love not to mix with them. Clearly, Larry operates in a field that is not without differences, and of course, he navigates it beautifully. Today, Larry will give us his latest thinking on the American political scene as it particularly relates to the exciting presidential primary season, and he'll be happy to take questions afterwards. So, Larry. Tom, thank you very much. You and Althea do a terrific job, all your people here with this more than the score series, which I think is a great way to remind people that, that uh, the two go together, athletics and scholarship, and we want people exposed to both parts of the University of Virginia. Good morning and wahoo-wah. Wah. There we go, I like to hear it. In case you're wondering, while these wonderful people here are fine, the ones who are already here, the rest of the seats are reserved for those who are nursing hangovers from last night. They will be trickling in with their tomato juice uh, during the, and believe me, there's a lot of people with hangovers, judging by what I heard on the lawn last night. All night. Some may or may not be here for, for uh, even the, the uh, tailgating. In any event, uh, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, you know, Tommy, I'm sorry. I love Mr. Jefferson. You know that. I frequently talk to him. Late at night, very late at night. He never appears, but I hear his voice. All right, I vote for him almost every election. I write in Thomas Jefferson. I've never been disappointed. But I've got news for you. He was a politician before he was a statesman. Okay, you, you didn't get elected uh, vice president and president twice without being a politician. So they all like to pretend they're statesmen, but in fact they were politicians before they were statesmen. Well, look, we're going to have some fun, as we always do, and we're going to cover the the field. Uh, the great thing is, of course, it's 13 months ahead of the election. If you're expecting me to make precise predictions, forget about it. 
forget about it. We don't do that. We make predictions. We can start getting the data hard enough to make decent predictions uh, late summer for the, for the fall election. That's when we issue our first set of predictions, and they've always got a margin of error to them. But essentially, that's when we do it. All we can do right now is talk about what might happen, which frees us up to, to be wild and woolly, almost as though we were West Virginians. So <laughs> almost, almost. And that's what we're going to do uh, with, our, with our little PowerPoint here. And I want to salute my current assistant, Tim Robinson, for coming up with all these little techno gimmicks that I can barely operate. I, I, they have to tell me how to hit, which button to hit, you know, to do these things. And you'll, where's the last one? Oh, there, you know, various and sundry ones. I think this is overloading this particular computer. It's not working very rapidly. But oh well, we'll get through it. I guess you won't be able to hear the songs. And there's Mr. Jefferson. There, there's my candidate. There's my candidate. Okay, look, you know and, and I know that this has been a lost year, and it will be a lost year, because it's been given over to these subjects, uh, uh, that disastrous uh, August debt debate that turned everybody off to Congress across the board. I mean, they're down at historic levels, never been at this level before, 11, 12, 13 percent job approval. Uh, that means literally almost nine out of ten Americans disapprove of what Congress is doing. Large majorities of Democrats, Republicans, Independents, the only people left approving them are the members, their families, and staffs, <laughs> plus the lobbyists, of course. There are tens of thousands of them who are quite happy with what they're doing. But, you know, it's, it's just amazing. Uh, you just never see numbers like this. With that, They say we're divided. No, we're not. We're united in our view of Congress, at least. Uh, divided in other ways. But, you know, the jobs package, they can't agree on what to do there. They have very different visions. We are so polarized. Yes, we've been polarized many times in American history, but not in, not in this way. It's, we don't have, um, we haven't had in the past a strict partisan polarization the way we have, simply because uh, until recent decades, Republicans had a large moderate faction and Democrats had a large conservative faction. That's no longer the case. There are virtually no conservatives left in the Democratic Party represented in Congress and in most other places, and there are no moderates and liberals left in the Republican Party. Uh, hardly any, one or two in Congress, that's about it. Uh, the Republicans are comprehensively conservative, the Democrats are comprehensively liberal, and therefore it's Mars talking to Venus. They just have nothing in common. And that's why they have such a tough time sitting down and reaching what I think most of us would be able to do if we met together uh, in a room for a few days and had some briefings about the debt and the deficit, I'll bet you we'd be able to come up with a decent plan for substantially reducing it instead of playing at the edges. But they can't do that. They're, they're not able to do it, and they're locked into their local constituencies, which have been redistricted for them, that's mentioned it on here, so that they, they get reelected endlessly but that means they have to be responsive if you're a Republican to the far right of your party and if you're a Democrat to the far left of your party. So they have nothing in common. Their feet are in concrete 
and they're unwilling to work with one another because they want to continue in office, which may be an argument for, for term limits, although there, there are negative things you can say about term limits too. We can talk about that later if you're interested. So this is a year devoted to political posturing. It's a year devoted the, where the political energy is actually being drained by this redistricting process, which is despite what your representatives will tell you, both state level and federal, is their number one priority because that's their jobs. Their jobs are number one priority. That's where the energy of politics is going this year in redrawing these districts so that the vast majority of them will get reelected for the next 10 years. This is 10 years worth of elections at stake in one year. So you can see why it's a priority for them, even if you don't necessarily respect it. All right, let's talk about each layer of election, and then we're going to take some questions from you, as we always do at this event that I think I've done for decades. I can't remember how long this has gone on, uh, but it's, it's a long-running conversation, and, and we're enjoying it. Uh, the House of Representatives. The current situation, of course, Republicans have that 49-seat margin that they gained in, in 2010, 242 to 193. That means Democrats have to gain 25 seats to take control. And you say, well, it's a 435-member body, uh, 25 seats. That doesn't take much of a, a seat shift to produce a, a turnover. Not really. Because of the redistricting process, which is going to be especially fresh next November, the vast majority of those seats won't be competitive. Uh, even with this tremendous unpopularity in Congress, I'll be surprised if we have 60 or 70 competitive seats. It may be more like 50 or 60, maybe even below that, but highly competitive, you know, where you really can't predict the winner. The vast majority of them will be over before the election starts. It's, it's not unlike, I don't know, how, how many of you are Virginians? You, you have, and we have, I'm a Virgin, native Virginian. It's embarrassing what is going on in these state legislative elections. Do you know that two-thirds of the seats essentially are not even competitive? They're, they don't even have an opponent. You're, many of you are going to go to the polls on election day or get your absentee ballot, and you're going to have no one but the incumbent to vote for. The election for the House of Delegates is over. Well over 60 of them have no opponent. There are 100 members. Why, why bother? Why are we spending the money? Let's just, you know, send out absentee ballots to the, to the handful of people who vote. And by the way, about 25 to 30 percent will even show up. And I understand why they won't, why the other 70, 75 percent won't show up. Why bother? Yeah, there's some local elections on there. But uh, by and large, the, the uh, state legislative elections, particularly the House of Delegates, aren't competitive at state Senate level. About half of them uh, have, uh, have no opponent. That's by design. And the other party doesn't nominate somebody because it's pointless. They've drawn the district in such a way that it is hopeless for the other side to win. This, this process is destroying American democracy because it depends upon competition, just like business does, to be efficient and effective. There's less and less and less competition in politics, also because of the amount of money you have to raise and what you have to go through to get elected. So it's, it's just a terrible problem. We'll, we can talk about that more later. I've, I've wondered about our system. I think, they're, I think the flaws have become so substantial that if somebody came to me from, say, an emerging democracy in another country where there's been a revolution, they're trying to write a constitution, and they asked me, should we, should we model our system on the United States system 
or should we pick a parliamentary system? It would take me three microseconds to say pick a parliamentary system with perhaps an elected uh, president either by the parliament or by the people go with a parliamentary system. They can actually get something done. Parliamentary systems can get something done. Our system can't. We have to invent institutions like a super committee or a base closing commission to get anything done. And really, it's, it's depressing. I hope I'm getting you really down so that the game will, will pick you up and see. And that's, I think, a great day is defined by being in the lowest valley and on the highest peak in the same day without drugs. I won't say without alcohol. I know my crowd. But anyway, we're going to do our part. So we've got 60, 70 competitive elections, maybe, maybe, in the House of Representatives. Now think about that. There are competitive seats on the left and on the right, Democrats and Republicans. How are Democrats going to get, going to eke out 25 additional seats out of 60 or 70 competitive races? Very tough to do. Very tough to do. Not impossible. Nothing's impossible. It would take a major presidential landslide with coattails. And here's a little hint of what's coming in my presidential presentation. There ain't going to be any presidential landslide. That's for sure. That, that's the one choice you can eliminate right now because of the state of the economy. Uh, so the long and short of it is Republicans are likely to retain control of the House. I can't give you a margin. It's way too early. We don't even have, we don't have competitors picked for the seats that will have two-party competition in the vast majority of the cases. It's way too early to do that. But I, I would think it's likely, I'm not going to go beyond that, likely that Republicans will retain control, which means, of course, if President Obama is reelected, what you're seeing today will continue for the entire second term. You will have divided government, regardless of what happens in the Senate. We'll get there in a minute. Regardless of what happens in the Senate, you will have divided government. And under our divided system of government, with multiple vetoes everywhere, which was perfect for the 18th and 19th centuries, or as Governor Perry would say, the 16th. Uh, he, um, he put the American Revolution in the 16th century this past week. But what the heck, the past is the past, as I think Faulkner said. And William Faulkner was here. So I think it all fits in. What's the difference, really? 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, they're all dead, the 20th, 20th century. Uh, so you, you know, essentially, uh, you're going to have a presidency that can't, can't get much out of Congress. I mean, I'll be surprised if you can get a Mother's Day resolution out uh, during the second term. He's going to have to be what Nixon turned into for the piece of his second term and Reagan turned into once the Democrats took over the Senate. What they all do when the other party takes over Congress, they become foreign policy presidents because it's all they can do. And presidents are given much greater latitude in foreign policy. So that is his second term if he's focusing on that. Of course, he's just focusing on trying to get reelected, and it will be very, very difficult. Very possible, but very difficult. We're going to talk about that. So that's, you know, a little preview of the House. Now, what about the Senate? You all, at least in the past, have always loved Senate races. This is easy to predict in one sense. There's only one direction in this election, and that's additional Republican seats. The only question is how many additional Republican seats. Now, you'll remember in the first two years of the Obama administration, the margin, or most of it, 60-40, until Scott Brown won the Massachusetts special. 60-40, and, and that's exactly what Democrats needed to get 
the stimulus passed and the, and the health care reform bill passed, they couldn't have done it with fewer than 60. They needed those 60 seats. Although, as I like to, to say, to really run the government, you need 60 reliable senators, which means you have to have 70 senators to have 60 reliable senators. Uh, you know, the, the Senate is designed not to work, and it does a great job of it. Uh, you know, people ask me, what, what's the Senate designed to do? And the answer is nothing, and they do a terrific job constantly, regardless of who's in charge. makes no difference. But so now they're down to 53-47, thanks to the 2010 elections. Democrats 53, Republicans 47. Uh, projecting forward to 2012, it's already 52-48. The North Dakota seat's already flipped. It's over. Uh, for all practical purposes. So the Republicans have picked up one there. That means the Republicans need uh, two seats if they get the vice presidency, if Vice President Rubio uh, casts the, the deciding uh, vote there, or McDonald, if some of you are, are McDonald fans. He wants it. They just came out with a new survey of uh, political activists, um, and Rubio's got 65% of the vote, and I hate to tell Governor McDonald he's at four. Uh, but uh, polls change, as we've seen. Uh, and maybe he can be the new front runner, the way things are going. But anyway, um, you've got, uh, you've got uh, two seats if, if uh, the vice president breaks the tie. You've got three seats needed if Obama and Biden win re-election. Well, you look at the, at the map, and essentially, you can see right at the top, there are 23 Democratic seats and just 10 Republican seats. Why is it so, quote, unbalanced? Because you go back six years, 2006 was a big Democratic year. Loads of Democrats won. When you have a wave, as Democrats had in 2006, then you're going to have some weaker candidates coming up for re-election, and they can't survive in a tougher year for their party. That inevitably means Republicans are going to pick up some seats, and the Democrats have so many to protect compared to the Republicans. They only have to protect Scott Brown in Massachusetts and Dean Heller, the appointed senator in Nevada. That's it. The other eight Republicans are effectively already reelected. There's just not enough competition in those states to, uh, to threaten them. Now, for the, for the Democrats, you see the yellow, uh, the yellow states here. These are the ones that are, that are threatened, the Democratic seats that are threatened. You know the Virginia seats, 50-50, probably go the way of the presidential election in Virginia, and we'll talk about how that's going to shape up shortly. The Wisconsin seat, which is open, Democrat Cole retiring, Missouri, Senator Claire McCaskill, one-termer. She's got a very tough re-election race. Nebraska was just out there, and they're, they're betting on what percentage Senator Ben Nelson will lose by. I mean, he, he's a two-term Democrat in a state that I would estimate would vote Republican for president by maybe 65%. Hey, you, you can't beat that kind of thing. And, and Nelson's people say to me, no, wait. He got elected in 2000 when George W. Bush was winning 62%. That's true. The difference is we weren't nearly as divided in 2000. Despite the divided result, we weren't as polarized. We are much more polarized today. This has been a progressive phenomenon that's occurred during the first decade of the 21st century. Because we're so polarized, it means that presidential coattail matters more, that when people start voting Democratic at the top of the ticket, they're very likely to continue voting Democratic all the way down. When people start voting Republican for president, they're very likely to continue voting Republican all the way down the ticket. So this increased coattail, this increased polarization is going to mean that in many of these states, the identity of the new senator is going to be equivalent to the presidential candidate who carries that state. Well, I can tell you right now, Obama's going to lose in Montana, and Senator John Tester's going to have a tough time 
getting reelected, one-term Democrat. Uh, Nebraska, Ben Nelson, I mentioned, McCaskill in Missouri. There's no way Obama's going to carry Montana, Nebraska, Missouri. He may carry New Mexico. That's an open seat, open Democratic seat. We'll have to see. Wisconsin, uh, Obama may carry it again. We'll have to see. They've had a tough economy and a very divided political system there, and Virginia we'll talk about in a moment. So you can see this is it's going to increase the Republican total in the Senate. It, it could get to 49, 50, 51, 52. It's, it's too early to say, but they'll be going up. And obviously, if you get to even 49 or 50, the Senate, the Senate doesn't just do nothing. It gets a doctorate in nothing, okay? Because it'll be complete and total gridlock about everything except the votes to take the vacations. Uh, that will be unanimous. All right. Now, for those of you who want to look even further into the future, this almost guarantees that Republicans will pick up the Senate by 2014. Again, because of happenstance. Only a third of the Senate's up every two years. Not only did the Democrats have a wave in 2006, they got something very unusual, two waves in a row. You have to go back to Roosevelt, to find, FDR, to find a, a two or three wave uh, process. And so you had uh, Democrats doing extremely well in 2008. Well, those are the senators coming up in 2014. Once again, it's totally banked to Republicans picking up seats. 20 Democrats are up, only 13 Republicans. And look at those red states that are up. They're the hardcore Republican states. No way in this world are the Republican incumbents going to lose in those states unless individuals get involved in a scandal. And even then, they might lose in the primary rather than the general. It's the Democrats who are endangered. So by 2014, if, it could happen in 2012 that the Republicans take over the Senate. It almost certainly will happen by 2014. Again, gridlock, gridlock, gridlock if President Obama has a second term. So let's get to that presidential election. This is, the, and some of you have seen this before because I've had it for two and a half years. I added it right after the 2008 election and said this is the summary of the 2012 election and we won't know the answer for a long time, but will President Obama be the next Jimmy Carter or the next Bill Clinton? What's the difference between the two? You can come up with lots of answers, but the correct answer is <laughs> luck, luck pure luck, which is underrated in our political system, just pure luck. And if there are any of you out there who think that presidents run a $14 trillion national economy and actually determine what our economy looks like, I want you to come up and bid on the rotunda, I'm the real estate salesman for it. I'm going to make a deal right after this is over, okay? They don't run the economy. They sit there and cross their fingers that we're going to have a good economy in their re-election year. That's really what it amounts to. They affect the margins of the economy. They don't affect much more than that. They either have good luck or bad luck. And, of course, we always want presidents to have good luck because that means the country's having good luck. Well, essentially, Jimmy Carter had all his good luck in the first two years of his term, and then everything turned sour. Two recessions prior to the election of 1980, including one during 1980. You never want to have a recession in the election year. The second, of course, was the Iranian hostage crisis, which ended up breaking and bursting and falling apart on the Sunday before the Tuesday election. What a disaster. Going into that final weekend, Carter and Reagan were nearly tied. Reagan was a couple points. I think he would have won anyway, but it was a couple point victory. And with the collapse of the negotiations, boom, voop, 10 points, 10 point victory. 
So uh, bad luck or good luck? Jimmy Carter, unluckiest modern president. Bill Clinton, as I always say, the luckiest modern president, except for Reagan. Reagan was even luckier with the timing of the economic recovery. But Clinton was very lucky, and he even timed his sex scandals for non-election years. Um, I should qualify that. He timed the sex scandals that we knew about for non-election. He got sloppy in the non-election years. Okay, that's terrible, but it's also true. Now, presidents running for re-election, presidents running for re-election, they either cruise, like uh, Carter. That's a little car sound. Do you hear that? That's, a little, that's, that's great. Tim, congratulations. Or I think that may have been Joe Figueroa. You have to give him credit, the prior guy. Uh, Carter and Reagan and, and Nixon obviously did very, very well in their re-elections, or they end up losing. I didn't hear the crash sound. Some of this is coming across and some isn't. Uh, but I'll just tell you when you don't hear the sounds. We got, we got a song later, but I can't sing. That's the problem that you're going to hear. George H.W. Bush and, and Jimmy Carter. But occasionally there are exceptions. When you have a close re-election race, they're relatively rare, but you do have them. And you can have Woodrow Wilson, who of course had Virginia ties, as you, as you well know, and used to come down and visit the University of Virginia and was friends with President Alderman, our first official president, and uh, George Bush. Uh, riding his motorcycle instead of a carriage. But uh, he had a close re-election in 2004. It was 51%, came down to 60,000 votes in Ohio, one way or the other. Uh, Kyle Condick's uh, home state there that always decides the elections, and Virginia and Ohio are fighting now to see which one will become the ultimate super swing state. But I've covered my bets by hiring Kyle. So what matters? What will determine what category Obama falls into? It's going to be a lot of different things. Now, the unemployment rate, I've talked to, I'm not an economist, my other habits are good. Uh, I can't tell you what it'll be, but I've talked to a wide variety of economists, right, left, and middle, and I've yet to have one tell me the unemployment rate will be below 8.5. Now, maybe they're all wrong, they frequently are. Uh, if you follow these comments, I, just by accident the other day, I was rewinding a, a tape, a videotape, to search for something, and I came across this broadcast from January, a very well-known economist who's on every network almost every night telling us what's happening, uh, one of these Moody's guys, forget his name at the moment, but he said, he, this was his January projection, this is going to be a great year, unemployment's going to fall dramatically, and this is going to happen, and that's going to, not one single thing he said has happened. And that was the, not criticizing him, that was the consensus view among economists in January. So I don't know how much we can depend on them, but they all tell me unemployment is not going to fall very far. It's still, it's stuck at 9.1. Look at this awful graph for Obama. That's a terrible graph, not to mention the uh, 16 million who are unemployed or underemployed in the United States. But it's just not gone anywhere. And the New York Times says nobody since Roosevelt's been reelected with a 7.3% or higher unemployment rate. That is true, but it also is misleading. Uh, Roosevelt won twice with rates far higher than the 9.1% that we see today. There is no magic number. Don't ever look for a magic number in politics. There is no magic number. You have to look at a wide variety of numbers to come up with any reasonable prediction. But this is going to be bad. It's just a question of how bad it will be. Now, it does matter whether it's coming down or going up or staying stationary. If it's stationary or going up, 
the incumbent president is very hard pressed to win re-election. If it's coming down steadily, if every month you see it tick down a tenth of a point, at least that gives the incumbent president an argument. Things are getting better. I know you're not happy with this performance, and I'm not either. But of course, if you elect that other guy over there, it's going to be so much worse for this reason and that reason. The, the message implicitly is stick with the devil you know rather than the devil you don't know. And sometimes that can sell in politics. It depends, obviously, on the other candidate. Now, also, uh, GDP growth. Uh, how is our economy growing or not? And again, during the Obama administration, and it started in the Bush administration, everybody knows that, everybody concedes it, and yes, Bush is still more unpopular than Obama. He is still blamed for more of the bad economy than Obama. Obama's problem is that his opponent in 2012 will not be named George W. Bush, and there's no way to substitute names on the ballot. So Bush can be more unpopular than Obama, but it doesn't mean that Obama gets credit for Bush being more unpopular. So we'll, we'll have to see. It's been, if anything, growth is slowing. Some economists predict a double dip. Others say no, we'll skate by just above a double dip. I have no idea, but it almost doesn't matter to people. Uh, it feels like a recession. The Great Recession continues. Uh, in the psychology that is embraced by most American voters. That's what's really important. Now, I have to also add, every now and then, and I've studied how GDP changes quarter by quarter and how it affects elections, every now and then a president gets lucky. Again, that great word, luck. And GDP growth that had been very slow will spurt right prior to the election, in the quarter prior to the election. And believe it or not, people feel that. They do feel it. Uh, they see it, they, they feel it because friends and relatives are being hired. They feel it because they finally got a raise, whatever it may be. They start to feel better. And when people are feeling better, they're more inclined to vote for the incumbent. When did this last happen in a major way? I'm not counting Reagan and and Clinton because the economy started improving in the final quarter of the year prior to the election, so that doesn't count. It happened for Gerald Ford, and you say, aha, uh -huh, he lost, so your theory is disproved. No. Ford was 33 points behind Jimmy Carter in August of 1976. After a long period of really slow economic growth, it wasn't just the Nixon pardon. People had more or less gotten over that by 1976. That had happened in, in uh, September of 74. Instead, it was economic growth. And people said, my God, we've got to get this country moving again. And this new, young, bright, you know, moderate conservative Democrat came out of nowhere from Georgia. Nobody knew who he was, but that was fine because he wasn't Ford or Nixon. Then the economy shocked everybody. And in that last quarter prior to the election, a 7.4% growth in one quarter. And Gerald Ford nearly won that election from 33 points down to two and a half points down by election day. It was the single most important factor in his catching up. Don't rule out the possibility. It's there. You have 13 months in advance. Who knows? You have to keep that in mind as well. Uh, turnout will matter enormously. We had a giant turnout in 2006, 62 to 63 percent voting, uh, best since the 1960s. 2010 midterm election turnout always goes down. This went down to the low 40s. We lost 20 percent, uh, 20 full percentage points of the voters in uh, 2010. Well, where's the 
uh, turnout going to be, and what comprises the turnout? Who's charged up? If the election were this November, Republicans would outvote Democrats. I don't have any doubt about it. I, I think there's just no, uh, Obama, here's one place where he is lucky. If, if this were the election date, this November, bye-bye. There, there's zero chance that he would get reelected this November. 13 months, he's you know, potentially got time to change and change that balance of enthusiasm. Right now, the enthusiasm is heavily on the Republican side. And all the surveys show it that measure enthusiasm. Some of the surveys focus just on voter enthusiasm. It's not even a close call. But again, 13 months is a long time. Now, uh, Obama's job approval, this is what we call the classic mountain downslope. And it, it's happened for loads of presidents. This is what happens to presidents. You wonder why so many people want to run for the darn thing. Uh, there's only one peak up. You know what, what was it. You know that. Osama bin Laden, of course. That was, that was, and it was a brief peak. You know, boom, right down again. And he's in the, the low to mid-40s, depending on the survey. The average is 44 or so. Uh, not nearly good enough to get reelected unless there's a multi-candidate split. We'll talk about that, too. But in a two-way race, mm-mm. You have to be at least at 48. That's where George W. Bush was. He was at 48 on election eve, and he got 51 through a better enthusiasm plus voter mobilization. And that brought him over to 51%. You can get away with 48. You cannot get away with 44. And as I say, some surveys have the actual electorate job approval for Obama at about 41. But 13 months, I keep mentioning that. And there are other issues that can come into it that are completely unpredictable. You never know, God forbid, terrorism, you know, war and peace. We, we do seem to get involved in lots of wars here and there. You just never know what's going to happen. And that can change the calculus. It's possible to override the economy. That's how Nixon won in 1968. We had an unemployment rate in 1968, and this is incredible, of 3.2%. We'll never see that again. Never in our history will we have an unemployment rate of 3.2%. That's the ultimate full employment. It's probably too much, in a sense, for the economy to take. But the economy was going great guns. But Vietnam overrode the economy. And you have to add the Wallace and the Nixon vote together. The vast majority of the Wallace vote would have gone to Nixon in a two-way race. That would have been a 55-45 race otherwise. So, Again, you have to keep your eye on these things. Social issues are always motivating for lots of people on both sides, and that takes precedence over the economy for millions of voters. Scandal, you know, Solyndra by itself won't do it. I mean, really, what's in our, in our system with the kind of monies we're talking about, what's a half a billion among friends, really? Um, <laughs> wish we could add that to UVA's endowment, um, but it doesn't work like that. But you know, there can be others, and you start adding them up, and suddenly it becomes a major issue in the campaign. And, of course, money and organization. Obama will raise more than the Republican. I doubt that money will be the deciding factor. Obama will raise a billion, more or less, you know, one side or the other of a billion. The Republican counting the, the super PACs and, and the other independent spending that occurs will spend about half that, because the Republicans are spending their money fighting one another. But believe it or not, that's not much of a differential. Two to one doesn't matter as long as the one is substantial enough to get across the message of the campaign. Um, so we'll have to see. So for, for Obama, you know, essentially it, it comes down to this. His old slogan of hope and change has become hope for a change. And, you know, it's a very tough thing to do in these sorts of circumstances. So I'm going to 
outline how he could get reelected. Obviously, it depends to a great degree on whether the Republicans nominate, of course, strong Virginia, weak Georgia Tech, I don't know. It doesn't relate to football necessarily, but in certainly quality of the mind. There was a question mark at the end of that. You're grown, yeah, that's wrong. Are there Georgia Tech people in here? Get them out. Tom, I never approved that. I never approved Georgia Tech people coming in here. Uh, but now look, I don't endorse candidates. I could care less. I'm already telling you, I'm voting for Thomas Jefferson. I always do. I like this. That keeps me neutral. I don't want to be invested in anybody's campaign. Uh, and Thomas Jefferson's better than everybody running, put together. So, oh, there, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You mean Mr. Jefferson only has two fans left? Really, it's, it's a, thank you. Thank you so much. Now he rolled back over. He feels better that you applauded him. But I don't endorse candidates, but listen, my job is to analyze electability. All right? That's, it's easy to do when you sit down, you look at all the factors. And I'm sorry, I realize some of you favor one candidate, some of you favor another. So of course, many of you are for Obama, but of the Republicans, I got to tell you, this is the way it shakes out. I got the, the person who is the most easily electable electable, I don't care what you think about him, is Mitt Romney. He's a blue state Republican, all right? He's going to inherit the red states just because he has an R next to his name. That's all it takes in running against Obama. He will inherit the red states. It doesn't matter under our electoral college system whether you carry a red state by 61% or 51%. You get all the electoral votes, unless they change the rules in Pennsylvania, which they shouldn't. Uh, you know, in Maine and Nebraska, you know, they're nuts. Um, we don't want to follow that, that principle. But Romney has the ability, I think, to win New Hampshire, and you say, who cares, four electoral votes. Do you remember 2000? It's going to be a close competitive race. New Hampshire made the difference. If Gore had won New Hampshire, and he would have had Nader not been on the ballot, he would have won irrespective of Florida. Four electoral votes in our divided system matters a lot. And I think that's one state that Romney would definitely pick up that, do you think Perry can carry New Hampshire? Get real. <laughs> not a chance that's going to happen. Uh, Michigan, I think uh, because he grew up there and his father was governor there, he's won the primary in 2008 there, he'll probably win it in 2012. Uh, he's clearly more electable. We'll talk about the other pluses and minuses in a moment. Of this field, and let's be honest, and all of you know this is true, this is the JV, not the varsity. You know this. This is not the Republicans' strongest potential field. They didn't run. People like Mitch Daniels, Jeb Bush, uh, Paul Ryan, uh, Chris Christie, you can go on and on. I can pick you a much better field for a combination of personal and political reasons. They didn't run. The Republicans are left with this. That's not to say they can't win with it, but they're left with a secondary field. So uh, this is what you've got. Herman Cain, <laughs> I put him third because there's not much to pick from. Uh, for the rest, I think the rest would have a hard time winning. Huntsman, I don't even know why we got him on there. He's a, he's a candidate in search of a constituency. He's running, he's running to be the nominee of the Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party, which ceased to exist 20 years ago. Um, you know, Michelle Bachman, I'm not even getting into that. Uh, Newt Gingrich, as I always say, very bright guy, got enough baggage for a 747. 
So if you want to, you know, those of you who are Republicans, if you want to win, you really don't have a choice, whether you, whether you know it or not. There's no choice. And that's why, if you're paying attention, the establishment behind the scenes has heavily lined up already for Romney. I mean, you surely are watching these endorsements. It's not just Christie. There are hundreds of them because they get it. They get it. Uh, other people don't. And they thought Perry might be a potential winner, depending on how he came across. Well, you've seen him. Now, I'm not ruling him out for the nomination because it's a very conservative party. He, there's no question he's more conservative than Romney, whichever Romney you pick. Uh, he is more conservative than, than Mitt Romney. You know, Mitt Romney's been all over the lot. You've got to go to YouTube. I mean, they're just some great... You know you're going to see these things on TV and TV ads as the Republicans progress through their primaries, but his debate with Ted Kennedy in 1994, he ran against Kennedy for the Senate, came reasonably close, by the way, uh, to Kennedy. That was a tough year for Democrats everywhere. And uh, the basic argument in that debate was which one of us is more liberal, with Romney arguing he was more liberal than Ted Kennedy in lots of ways. You can think about how that's going to come across on TV to Republicans right before they vote. So Romney has loads of obstacles to overcome before he gets a nomination. The establishment cannot deliver him the nomination. The establishment, the Republican Party, or the Democratic Party no longer has the influence to deliver presidential nominations. And there's this little thing called Tea Party that you've heard about, and they're not, they do not like Mitt Romney. One big faction of the Tea Party is already saying if he's nominated, they're going to put forth a Tea Party independent candidate. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment. But... Uh, that's, you know, that matters. Now, the other thing, I mentioned this. We're, now, look at Jimmy. You all, you all hate Jimmy. You're always attacking poor Jimmy Carter. He's wearing a UVA tie. All right? Try to remember this. There are good things about Jimmy Carter. Had a great class with him in 1986. He, was, he came here. and some, Were any of you in that 101 class with Jimmy Carter? I know I have a lot of former students in here. It was one of the most exciting classes I've ever had because they had never seen a president before, mainly, and, and it wasn't me. That was the other thing that was a plus about, about that. But look, you know, the Democrats blamed Herbert Hoover for years. The Republicans are still running against Jimmy Carter. So Obama's going to try it with Bush. It's clear Obama has already accepted that his legislative presidency is over. He is positioning everything from the jobs bill to even international policy to reflect the Truman point of view. He's going to run against the do-nothing Republican House. Truman ran against the do-nothing Republican Congress because they had both branches, uh, both uh, chambers at that time. And of course, uh, Obama's got to focus on the House. Here's the problem with this. As we had in our crystal ball this last week, uh, Truman had a great economy, a pretty good economy. In the fall of 48, it's one of the things that really helped him overcome Thomas E. Dewey's early margin. There's not going to be a great economy. There may be an okay economy as things develop, but it's going to be tough. This is how Obama will win if he does. Now, if I know this crowd, and I always get questions and comments afterwards about, oh, can't we do anything about this awful negativity in politics? Let me put it to you this way. If you don't like negative campaigns, I urge you to go on a world tour in 2012. Do not set foot in the United States because they're going to incinerate one another, both in the primaries and particularly in the general. Obama has no choice but to demonize 
the Republican candidate. And believe me, it will be returned. It will, it will come back, uh, you know, fully. The, the other side's going to do exactly the same thing. You all remember the Daisy ad with the, in 1964 with the little girl picking daisies, uh, petals off the daisy, 10, 9, 8, 7, and then the announcer takes over, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, boom! The little girl is incinerated into a nuclear mushroom cloud. Uh, as uh, Lyndon Johnson intones about peace. <laughs> um, that is the equivalent of a Sunday afternoon picnic <laughs> compared to what you are going to see in 2012. I'm not exaggerating. Get ready. That's where the money's going to go. And, you know, again, it can work if the demonization is effective enough. What does it boil down to? This is, this is the history of elective presidents since 1824. We didn't really have elections prior to 1824. Most people weren't even permitted to vote, and the Electoral College didn't operate off popular vote in most states. So from 1824 to the present, it, it really is a third, a third, and a third. You've got a third that were defeated, a third that were narrowly reelected, and a third that won in landslides. Well, we can already eliminate the landslide. It's either going to be a narrow reelection, or it's going to be a defeat for Obama. It's one or the other. Now, for the Democratic side, he's, he already is lucky in one respect. If this holds, he has no Democratic opponent for renomination. And in modern American history, the only presidents who've been defeated for re-election have been challenged seriously for renomination. Uh, he doesn't have an opponent, and in a way it's surprising that he doesn't, because there's a lot of unhappiness on the left with Obama. Those of you who think Obama is a socialist will be very surprised to find out that uh, the liberals and the socialists don't think so. They're angry about the public option. They're angry about the size of the, of the uh, stimulus. They thought it should be much larger. And they may have been right in terms of stimulating the economy. But in any event, uh, they're unhappy with him. But they're not challenging him because the logical candidates have decided not to run. Uh, Biden and, and Clinton, you're going to read a lot about how they're going to switch places, and Biden's going to become Secretary of State, and Clinton's going to become the Vice President in your dreams. I mean, this, we hear this every four years when a president's in trouble, and uh, you remember George H.W. Bush thought about dropping Dan Quayle, and everybody pushed him to put Colin Powell on the ticket, and maybe it would have helped had he done it. Why didn't he do it? Because he realized that if he got rid of Quayle, number one, it would be an admission he made a mistake. And number two, uh, every vice president has a constituency of his own. You alienate that constituency. You generate negative headlines for weeks or months. It's not worth the trouble. And they don't make that much of a difference anyway in the election when you come right down to it. So when you get to these candidates, you, you really, you've got three contenders. And I can already see you're laughing at the Kane mutiny. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember that great 1954 film with Humphrey Bogart. Somebody said to me the other day, it was somebody else, it's Humphrey Bogart. Uh, and a great movie, I encourage you to watch it. But the mutiny here is of grassroots Tea Party activists against the establishment. They're basically saying, not only don't we want Mitt Romney, we're not impressed with most of the other potential winners of the nomination. We want somebody who's never been elected to public office. Kane's only run once. He lost overwhelmingly uh, in Georgia for the, for the U.S. Senate. Never been elected. Uh, and politics is the only profession where we seek people with no experience. Uh, you know, as, 
When, when you're getting ready to have an operation, don't you seek out the best surgeon you can find, the most experienced surgeon? We do the opposite in politics. We want people who can't find their way through the streets of Washington, <laughs> can't find the restrooms, you know, takes them two years. Uh, and, you know, Herman Cain's a great guy, nice guy, you know, good direct speaker, you know, all the rest of it. Uh, the, the, if you believe in that 999 program, again, I, I'm, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's on a plane with the tooth fairy. Uh, the chances of 999, even if he won somehow, he wouldn't, but even if he won, the chances of 999 becoming law are zero, zero, zero. It doesn't add up. And that's not from the left, that's from the right. The Wall Street Journal and the Home Builders and the Retail Federation, almost every business group in the world has said this is nutty as, as a fruitcake. And imagine adding 9% sales tax on top of the state sales taxes. Do you think maybe that would depress consumer spending and cause problems for the economy or weak economy already? Maybe, just maybe, it would cause problems. He doesn't know the details because his advisors are secret. I think they're secret from him. Um, <laughs> It's, you know, Kane is, he's the front runner right now. We've had five of them, beginning, by the way, with Donald Trump, which should tell you something, okay? That's the activists, again, it's a mutiny against the establishment. They're looking for somebody different to run. But in the end, I think their, their intense dislike of Barack Obama will bring Republicans back down to earth with a nudge from the establishment uh, of the Republican Party to do what they have to do to have a chance of winning. Uh, in November. And look, I don't rule out Perry coming back, given the amount of money that he's, he's got 50 million in the bank. He's raising every bit as much as Romney is, if not more. He can double that 15 to 30 by the time uh, this whole process starts entirely too early. Uh, coming up, we'll talk about that in a moment. So, you know, he can come back. He's more conservative than Romney. I can see the, the activists in some of these states refusing to go along. It could be it could be a long process. Uh, it's impossible to say. It could be over early. It could be over long. The system's been changed. It's been backloaded. You have a lot more contests in April and May than you did before. So uh, we'll just have to see. It's, it's really unknown at this particular moment. And that gets us to the calendar. The Republicans, to their credit, did a great job designing a calendar. It's the best job either party's done in modern history. And they, they pushed the beginning back to where it should be in February. Actually, when most of us were growing up, it started in mid-March with New Hampshire. But that's too much to ask for. So they started it with Iowa February 6th, followed uh, a week or so later with New Hampshire, and then on to Nevada caucuses and then the South Carolina primary and so on. And everything else came in. And then, of course, we had um, the, uh, the change. And this is all on account of Florida. Florida is the Grinch that stole Christmas. There is no question. There's your song. Mr. Grinch. You hear that? That's the Grinch song. I'll use this to take a drink of water. Okay, enough of that. So now we are starting. January the 3rd again, just the way we did in 2008, that absurdity where the candidates were campaigning on Christmas and New Year's, 
the act of everybody, the tens of thousands of volunteers, the whole political community, had no holiday season whatsoever. How many people want to watch negative TV ads while they're opening presents on Christmas Eve? This is, this is absurd. Our system doesn't work anymore. Here's another example of it. One state blew up the calendar. One. It only takes one. And, of course, they did it to increase their influence. Moving to January 31st and forcing these other four states back, you say, why force? Because their, their whole identities are psychologically bound up with being one of the first four. I mean, New Hampshire, I think, would have a mass suicide if they were not the first primary. And literally, the Secretary of State is talking about moving uh, to get more attention for New Hampshire, moving it into December, December 6th or 13th. I don't think he'll do it, but they're serious. They're talking seriously about that. So now we're going to start the campaign. We start the campaign four years early. We'll start the elections a year ahead of the election. You know, it's, it's insane. It's great for people in my field. It's terrible for everybody else. All right, we're going to conclude by looking at the Electoral College, and you know and I know that Republicans are getting a bonus this year of five to seven votes because of redistricting, moving uh, the, uh, the uh, votes from the Northeast and the Midwest down to the South and the West. They're going to pick up five to seven, depending on how a couple of those swing states go. And this is the uh, electoral map, essentially as it exists today, based on one premise 13 months in advance, that it actually is competitive. It doesn't turn into a 1980 where it's one-sided. It has to be competitive. If it's competitive, this is the way the states fall. Democrats have an advantage now in the Electoral College because the larger states, with the exception of Texas, are either swing states or heavily blue. And so, again, in California, it doesn't matter whether Obama gets 62 or 55. He gets all those massive, that massive package of electoral votes, the, the uh, 55 electoral votes in California. So it boils down to 247 for Obama, 206 for uh, the Republican nominee, uh, Mitt Romney type, let's say, and 85 super swing electoral votes in those seven states you see, Virginia being the most surprising, New Hampshire, Ohio, Iowa, Colorado, and Nevada. If the election were this November, Republicans would carry at least five of the seven. But the election isn't this November. It's in November of 2012. Last point, we could always have independents. When do they arise? The winter and spring of the election year. Ross Perot, February of 1992, connects with Larry King. Now we got lots more options on cable TV. There are loads of shows for candidates to launch their candidacies on. It could be from the left, though I doubt it. There could be one from the left. That would hurt Obama. There could be a uh, right-wing Tea Party candidate, and I mentioned that Romney may, may generate one. That's what they say now. Maybe they'll come to terms with him. You know, a Christine O'Donnell is always willing to run uh, and lose badly. But the 4% she'd get, 90% of it would be out of the Republican column. It would probably make the difference in the election, probably reelect Obama. And then there are a lot of centrists who are pushing various people to run. You have this Americans Elect program. Tom, uh, Friedman, uh, Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, is really pushing this independent centrist uh, idea of getting a, a you know a, a middle of the road. A candidate running, possibly a wealthy person. It only takes a billionaire. We got plenty of them. 
uh, takes one billionaire or one celebrity, or maybe a celebrity billionaire. Gosh, who could it be? I just, I just don't know who it might be. Uh, who could it turn out to be in the end? You have to have a big ego. There you go. I knew it wouldn't work with Georgia Tech. Tim, I salute you for that. Good job. All right. That's it. Crystal ball. He who lives by the crystal ball ends up eating ground glass. And again, I just want to reemphasize what Tom said about the books. Uh, this is, appreciate that, Tom. Now, let me take some questions. Try, I hope you'll line up. If you won't, I'll call on you and try to repeat the questions. Some of you are shy. Yes, sir. Do I think the anti-Wall Street movement, the Occupy Wall Street, will have any impact? Certainly on the sewage system, from what I've seen. Um, look, you know, it's First Amendment right, and everybody has that right. Tea Party had that right. Occupy Wall Street has that right. Nobody has a right to violate the law, you know, civil disobedience, but you have to accept the consequences if you, if you do that. Look, I could... The Democrats are wary of this. You know, they're kind of encouraging them, but kind of putting distance because they don't know how it's going to spin. Now, for the Democrats, the best way to spin it, the way they hope it's going to spin, is that after they demonstrate for X number of days, weeks, months, they recognize that, you know, not a lot is being accomplished simply by demonstrating that it's the nitty-gritty of politics that matters. It's... Uh, working for candidates and going door to door and giving money and doing all the things you have to do to get candidates elected because that's the way our system changes and, it, and that's the way it should change. Will they make that transition or will it go the other way where it gets more violent and ends up causing problems for Democrats akin to, let's say, some events that occurred in 1968 that some of us remember. I don't know what it will be. I tend to think it will split. You know, you'll have the more practical people going into politics and the less practical ones with strange causes of one variety or another continuing uh, their occupying forces in various cities across America. Uh, if they do that, I think they will become less and less relevant. And remember, they're depending on media coverage. The one thing we know for sure about the media is they're easily bored. They move along very quickly from subject to subject. All right, let me take a question here. Thank you. All right. First of all, Professor Sabato, thank you. I, I, we, my wife and I come to this every year. We find it very in, entertaining and illuminating. So I appreciate it. You're, you for you're being very here. kind. We appreciate it. I want to go back to the very beginning of your talk okay. when you talked about Republican members of Congress having to tack to the right wing and, and, and Democratic members of Congress having to tack to the, to the left, that's their base. Right. Um, I, I'm a liberal Democrat. I, I don't see it that way. I mean, I sat trying to list all the, who I consider liberal members of Congress, and in alphabetical order, I came up with Dennis Kucinich. And that's, and that's, that's the it. only yeah. one? Well, uh, I so, can give you a much longer list. <laughs> I mean, I, I, really, I really feel like, you know, the, 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 the Democratic Party has tacked, I mean, yeah, sure. If you, if you draw a line down the center, they're still on the left. I've seen them tack way to the center. Um, and, and liberal Democrats like me are, are left hanging. 
Uh, so I mean, you eliminate the Congressional Black Caucus and the Hispanic Caucus, and you know you don't consider any of them liberal? No, of course not. I'm, 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 I'm exaggerating, but I, I see the issues that are being talked about. I, I, I just don't see the issues that are important to me as a liberal being very well represented on, on a national scale. And, and I'm wondering if, if you, you, do you disagree with that trend? Do you, do you disagree that the, that the Democrats have tacked towards the center? Or well, they did during the Clinton years. I think Obama has moved in a different direction. He certainly campaigned that way. Now, the yes, reason the left is way. angry at him is he didn't govern completely in that direction. But look at health care. Yes, the public option wasn't in there. But that's something every Democrat since Harry Truman has campaigned for, and he delivered it. So it depends on your perspective. It depends on how, how far to the left you want to go. Look, I get this question a lot. Here's the fundamental problem the left faces. I'm summarizing about 100 surveys. 17% of Americans call themselves liberal to left. 41% of Americans call themselves conservative to right. It's a matter of numbers. It's where the numbers come down. And so if you want to change the composition of Congress, the composition of public policy, you have to change minds. You have to reverse the numbers. It has to be 41% liberal left, 17% conservative right. I mean. It's, and the others obviously are moderates. They're in between. Uh, you know, they may be tilt to one pole or the other, but they're in between. But that's the truth. It comes down to numbers. So, I, no, I disagree with you. We just have a disagreement. But you know what? We're in the University of Virginia family, and we love one another. And that's what's really important. Fair enough. Thank you. Thank you. Good question. Yes. I have a question about bipartisanship. Yes. Um, with the tone in the country so extreme on the left and the right um, and the conversation so divisive, how do you make bipartisanship and moderation appealing to voters? Uh, excellent question. There's only one way to do it. Again, it, it's we the people. You know, it's not top down, it's bottom up. Now, how do you make that happen? By getting the moderates, the, the people in the middle who are not uh, left or right, to show up for caucuses and primaries and conventions where the candidates are chosen. Why is it that Democrats are responsive to kind of the left, whatever you want to call it, and Republicans are responsive to kind of the right? Because these are the people who vote in, in the caucuses, primaries, conventions. You know, we're down to about 16% or so of the people in each uh, of the total American population participating in each party's primaries, if you average it out, 16%. Well, who are the 16%? The more ideological you are on right or left, the more likely you are to turn up for a primary caucus or convention. The more moderate you are, the more you're likely to make the fail mistake of saying, I'm going to wait until November, I'm an independent, more or less. I'll decide when it matters. No, it matters in the spring. It matters in the spring when the nominees are chosen. And we have to convert that feeling if you want to change. If you believe everything's great and hunky-dory, you don't want to change. You like it the way it is. But if you think it would be helpful to have more participation from the center, then we're going to have to convince people they're wrong that they have to participate in the nominating process, not just in the November general election. Great question. I salute you. I am not going to take that as last question. We are going to continue, Althea, until we exhaust people. 
No. Well, we will do what she says. This, this is a, we will do what she says. She told me she was going to do this that. This is a quickie. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, health care and uh, yes. Obamacare. If, if, and it probably is an if, the Supreme Court were to rule in 2012, and depending on if they did how they ruled, will that play any uh, part in the election, in your uh, opinion? Absolutely it will. We don't know how they're going to rule. We don't know how Anthony Kennedy's going to feel that morning. Uh, when he when he decides which side to support in the 5-4 decision on health care. So, um, you know, if you want to write a Supreme Court justice on health care, I'd just pick Anthony Kennedy. Don't waste your, don't waste the postage. It's gotten expensive. You don't know whether it'll be delivered. Maybe you should fax it. But uh, they don't read email in Supreme Court, so you've got to do something. But let, of course it will. You know, it's, if, if uh, let's say the individual mandate's thrown out, that might infuriate the left. And they may get energized, which they're not right now because of the state of the economy. And remember, look at that unemployment rate and ask yourself, which party's constituency is more affected and depressed by a high unemployment and partial employment rate? You already know the answer. You know, half of African Americans under age 30 are unemployed. It's that bad. And so minorities, young people who voted 66% for Barack Obama, not University of Virginia graduates, all our people have the choice of jobs. But I'm talking about people from lesser institutions. I'm not going to mention any Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech. I'm not going to mention any because it would be wrong. But they have a problem. And they're also depressed. They may not vote Republican, but they may not vote. See, for the Republicans, their constituency is disproportionately employed. So the depression effect on voter turnout is heavily tilted to Democrats. So that's why the throwing out of the individual mandate would upset the left, but it might energize them. So, you know, politics is complicated, and sometimes the, the effect is very different than you think it might be. I'll take one more fun question. Is this a fun one? Is there any chance the super committee that has to report by Thanksgiving time for an up or down vote in Congress will, will produce something like Bowl Simpson, which had a four to five trillion dollar cut in the deficit uh, and debt as opposed to the one and a half more or less uh, trillion that came out of a Congress in August? Uh, I'm going to give you a really brief answer. Hope springs eternal. And that's it. I hope we have a great game, crowned with a victory. Thank you all for coming, and we'll see you. If you want a book, I'll be back there. Thank you, uh, Larry Sabato, for that wonderful talk. A small token from the election.